to the extent that we grasp the incredible nature of God's grace, our lives will be transformed and we will be free. How freeing it is to understand that we cannot earn God's grace. We cannot buy God's favour. It is his gift to us. God's grace is the foundation from which he works in the lives of all people. Let us pray. Our loving Father, as we come to consider the power of your love that emanates from you because of your grace, may we grab hold of it in our own lives and realise how much you love us and the potential that you have for us to live as your people, free and empowered by you when we're walking with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are saved because of God's grace. The Nelson Illustrated Bible Dictionary tells us that grace is favour or kindness shown without regard to the worth or the merit of the one who receives it, and in spite of what that same person deserves. Grace is almost always associated with mercy, love, compassion and patience as the source of help and deliverance from distress. Okay. Let me read the definition again because it's not a word that we use in English but I found it very helpful myself. Grace is favour or kindness shown without regard to the worth or the merit of the one who receives it and in spite of what that same person deserves. Grace is almost associated with mercy, love, compassion and patience as the source of help and deliverance from distress. Today we're looking at the stories of two men who on the surface seem quite different, but at a fundamental level, they're very similar. Both are wealthy men who had a profound encounter with God that resulted in the transformation of their lives and who they were as people. Naaman was a man. He was a commander, as we read, of the army of Syria, of um, Amman. He lived 900 years before the other man, Zacchaeus, who, as we read, lived at the time of Christ. Naaman was a great man, highly esteemed by King Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, or Syria, as it was referred to by the Greeks. Naaman was the captain of the army, and by his power, we read in verse 1 that Syria had become a dominant nation at that time. This man was not only a great man, he was also honourable, which means that his soldiers and his servants respected him. He was a mighty man of valour, which means that he was courageous and strong. 
the kind of person that's well respected and honoured by those who know him or hear of his reputation. He had earned his status. However, after all we read of the wonderful things about Naaman, there are five words. But he was a leper. The fact that he was a great general, the fact that he was courageous, the fact that he was honourable, the fact that he was highly esteemed by his own king, and even the fact that God led him to accomplish great victories is completely hollow because he's inflicted by an incurable wasting skin disease. He is a leper, and when recognised it would cause him to become a social outcast, so he's desperate for a cure. Zacchaeus was almost the exact opposite. While Naaman was a big, powerful, successful soldier, Zacchaeus, we're told, was a small man. He was short and couldn't see over the crowd, so in his curiosity to see what was going on, he climbed up a tree to see what Jesus looked like and what it was that he was doing. Despite his wealth, he was not respected. In fact, he was despised. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were seen to be extortionists who collaborated with the Romans who'd taken over Israel. He collected taxes for them, and reputation had it that he looked after himself very well too. So he probably wasn't very comfortable around crowds in his community. So the men are quite different, except that they were both quite wealthy. We learn from these texts something of the power of money to delude people, to entice and hold them captive. There is an irony in both these accounts. Wealth is supposed to get you inside, to enable you to have an important, respected position in your community and able to influence those around you. As we see today, wealth often gets those with it insider status and favoured positions. They expect and generally get favoured treatment and respect. And in the case of these wealthy men that were outsiders, they didn't have the respect and the adulation normally given to those who have an insider position because despite their wealth, they were outsiders. Naaman was a leper. A leper was so hideous, so contagious... It was a horrible skin disease, considered by some groups as an unclean condition and the punishment of the gods. There was revulsion to it, perhaps because in appearance or odour it resembled the rotting skin of a corpse. Now I read in the Bible background commentary that there's some debate whether it was really leprosy as we know it today or Hansen's disease because that ailment was not known before the time of Alexander the Great, about 356 to 323 BC. But regardless, it was bad, because Naaman was prepared to spend a lot of money to get cured, probably before it limited his career and it was too noticeable. As leprosy got worse, it quickly became obvious and people were pushed out from society. They were rejected. Now Zacchaeus did not have the disease leprosy but he too was rejected by the crowd. 
Note the crowd's critical attitude to Jesus when he called Zacchaeus down from the tree and said he was going to eat at his house. In verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Perhaps Luke, the narrator, is expressing the common belief that wealth will get you in, but here it doesn't. Jesus is derided for choosing to eat at Zacchaeus' house. These men had money. They were wealthy men, but they were trapped. Money has power because it promises to give you what it cannot. It promises to heal a deep-down sense that somehow you're an outsider, but it never satisfies the hunger that is there. Unless you take deliberate measures to prevent this quest to become an insider and the fear of not being inside, it will dominate your life. Tim Keller says, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, you'll remain an outsider. Money says it will get you in, into power, into comfort, into approval, into control. Money says it's going to get you there, but you can't, but it can't, and it doesn't satisfy. It cannot give you the influence, the real influence, the real love, the real thing that you're missing because its promises are hollow. In spite of the fact that both men are wealthy, they're outside, they are lepers in different ways. These stories tell us of the transforming power of God's grace. Let's look at the men and, how, and God and how they found that the way of salvation, the way salvation flows, is the exact opposite of how they learned money and status and power works in the world. You see, Naaman went to find healing. What do you do? You get a letter of reference. So he asked his king to write the necessary letter of reference, of introduction, that he could take to the king of Israel, together with a lot of money to pay his way. Now, if you recall... It was his servant girl, didn't say go to the king of Israel. His servant girl said, go to the prophet in Israel because he will be able to heal you. But Naaman, in the way he works, knows that the top people deal with the top people, so he ignores that and he goes to the king. He expected the king to tell the prophet to heal him or something. The money and demand from a conquering king through his mighty warrior, seemed to the king of Israel as if he was being set up to start another war. How could he demand the prophet cure this foreigner? That wasn't how God worked. So the king of Israel was upset. He tore his clothes. And Elisha heard of it and responded. Naaman was ignorant. He was doing what powerful and influential people did. He just expected he would obtain his healing from the God of the prophet in Israel in the same way he got his status and his money. He expected he had to do some great thing. He was well prepared to pay for it too. He came with 6,000 shekels of gold. What does that mean to you? If I told you it was 2,120 ounces of gold, Worth three and a half million dollars. Does that mean a little bit more? 
And he came with 10 34-kilo bars of silver that you'd pay $370,000 for. So about 400 kilos of precious metals. That's what it was worth to him to get healed. And 10 sets of clothes. He had a reference from his king to prove he was a good man. And he was ready to do a great thing. He pulled his chariot up outside Elisha's house and presumed that he would be received with pomp and circumstance by the prophet Elisha. That's what human nature desires. He expected the prophet would come to his chariot and do whatever prophets do and perhaps assign him a worthy challenge so he could prove that he was worthy to be healed. But Elisha didn't appear. Elisha sent out his servant to tell Nathan to go and wash in the Jordan River. The disrespect Naaman felt must have been incredible. He went away in a, ra- uh, in a rage. Any idiot can wash in a river. He had rivers near his home that were so much better. Why couldn't he have washed there and be healed? Naaman thought of himself as special, so he expected to be treated accordingly. He is confronted by a complete worldview revolution. He is wondering who this God is. Anybody can wash. What kind of God is it that would give healing or salvation to anyone, no matter who they were or what they'd done? But fortunately, his servants understood. Verse 13 we read, Naaman's servants said to him, went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. The requirement of the gospel is to see that you can't do a great thing and use it to persuade God. What was keeping Naaman from God was his pride. What really blocks God in our life is our self-centeredness, our pride, that we can live a good life and so we believe that we'll get in. After all, we've been good, however we define good. The balance between good and bad is on our side. That means, to our way of thinking, God essentially owes us salvation. But that, my friends, is not how it works. A religious person says, I've done great things, so God owes me a good life. I've done good things, so people owe me respect. But salvation works quite differently to money. When Naaman comes out of the water, he's cleansed. And And it was quite different to all that he'd learned before. Now Zacchaeus had climbed a tree, and he came down different too. It took two things to get Zacchaeus up in that tree. He was short, so he couldn't see Jesus. But the real reason was that the crowd hated him, so he couldn't ask to get to the front to have a good position. They believed that they were good people, and he was a rotten sinner. He was disloyal to the Jewish community. He worked for the Roman occupying force, so he was a traitor 
and he took advantage of his position and cheated them by collecting taxes for himself. So he was despised. Zacchaeus's obstacle was the exclusionism of the self-righteous crowds. Yet Jesus reached out to him anyway and entered his heart. We're told in verse Luke 19.5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Zacchaeus' conversion was immediate. He was accepted by Christ exactly as he was. His attitude of repentance following Jesus' acceptance was immediate. He wasn't looking to just satisfy the law. He was excited and no doubt after clambering down that tree much faster than he went up it and standing before the Lord in his enthusiasm. Like a little boy, he said, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus offered restitution, not merely by, not merely by adding the 20% penalty as the law demanded, but he offers 400%, 20 times as much. His attitude has changed. Jesus hasn't asked him. It was a spontaneous offer. He's now offering out of a transformed, generous heart with a joyful attitude in a way that honours God. He was not giving way beyond what was ex- sorry. He was not giving way beyond what was expected in Jewish law to impress Jesus, to earn his acceptance. He was already accepted, and he was promising to give out of the abundance of his now free heart, a true response to being transformed by God's grace. Let us note Jesus' response. Jesus said to him. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. I believe Jesus was excited at his response too. A real contrast to the judgmental attitude of the crowd that had at first blocked Zacchaeus. Naaman was transformed too. We read in 2 Kings 5.15, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. But Naaman had to learn that the benefits God provides through his grace cannot be bought. God works differently to man. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. And so the healed commander finally recognised that that God was not interested in his wealth, position in society, or anything else. But his healing was a gift from God, and he had done nothing to deserve it. As Naaman realised that the prophet's God was different, good, powerful, and he was going back home to continue with life, 
He then moved to ask how he can worship the Lord in his own place for the rest of his days. And so he says, if you will not accept a gift, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. We notice Elisha's words. Go in peace. Naaman illustrates the kind of concern God's people should have regarding their worship, their testimony, and appearance of evil. He knew that he would have to return to his old environment and live in the midst of idolatry and evil. But he was concerned that he had a proper means of worship for he could no longer just go along as had been and worship in the house of Rimmon with his king. He would not compromise Yahweh. He needed a place and a means for worship, so he asked for permission. And in this, you note the sudden change. He wasn't telling. He wasn't offering to give out of his abundance. He was asking permission to take two loads of soil back home. Whether it was to build an altar or whether to have some to kneel on, the exact reason isn't specified. It's only implied. He wanted to worship the God of Israel in his own land. It was evidence of his determination to forsake all other gods. He was concerned about God, what God would think about his presence in the house of Rimon when he had no choice but to attend with the king. Elisha's only response was, go in peace. This implies Elisha's assurance that God understands the issue was the attitude in his heart. Only through God's grace and accepting Christ into our lives will we ever find true freedom for our true selves. When Naaman and Zacchaeus met God, their lives changed dramatically. When they encountered God's grace, their outlook on both their money and their career totally changed. They were never the same again. As we look at them, let us ask ourselves, how much we have changed to become more like Christ would have us be, since we accepted his claim on our lives and surrendered ourselves to him? Are we living, realising that we are God's people because of his grace? Does it show in the way we use the money we have at our disposal? Do we tithe? Do we give joyfully to the Lord and his work out of a generous heart? Does it show in the way that we treat others, who we may perceive as being outsiders, people without status, or not of our group? Let each of us take time to consider who we are and what is important in the light of God's incredible grace towards us. How do we as his people live for him among people with very different values in a way that shows who we serve and in a way that is a challenge to those around about us 
a challenge as to who God in his grace and mercy is calling to himself. Amen.